So I'm reading from Mark, chapter 1, uh, 1 to 14. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out, out, out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came down from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and an angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Anyone there? Um, so today we are starting our new series, and we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel, and we're looking at the life and the work of Jesus. Mark was one of the first written accounts of Jesus's ministry, and it was written by a chap named John Mark, who we can find out from the letter to the Colossians and also from 1 Peter, was both a co-worker of the Apostle Paul and also worked very closely with the Apostle Peter. And theologians actually believe that this book is a collection of Peter's eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that Mark pulled together into the book we have today. Mark's account was probably written in Rome and circulated around the time of the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, if that was the case, we know that Nero was a little bit crazy, and he actually started persecuting Christians um, quite severely after the Great Fire of AD 64, and he made killing Christians in various horrible ways a bit of a sport. So if you keep that context in your mind, just imagine being one of those early Christians. Maybe you were um, huddled away in the catacombs under the city where the, um, they buried their dead in these tiny tunnels. And this is the gospel that is read to you to give you hope and encouragement. You might notice that Mark's gospel is a bit different from the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke. For example, do you have friends who, when they're trying to tell you a story, kind of ramble on a little bit and you kind of lose your way and you don't really know why you started and where you're ending up? Well, Mark is nothing like that at all, okay? His gospel is vivid, fast-paced, action-packed, and extremely concise. You might look at the beginning of Mark and ask, where's 
the Christmas story. There's no mention of Mary, of Joseph, there's no baby, there are certainly no donkeys. He doesn't tell us some of those initial stories that you might think might be there. No, Mark cuts to the chase. What, pray tell, is the chase? It's this, it's verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written by the Isaiah the prophet. Mark starts by making a seriously strong claim about who Jesus is. And he says three really important things. So firstly, he says that um, his account of Jesus' life and ministry is good news. Secondly, that Jesus is the Messiah. And thirdly, that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'll go into all of those three in a little bit. But verse one, I think, is also a topic sentence for Mark's gospel. It's all about Jesus. So before we've even met Jesus, we've seen any miracles, we've not heard any of his teaching, we know that Mark is telling us good news about a divine saviour who has been talked about and longed for for ages. And interestingly, this is the only personal statement that Mark makes about his own faith. In the rest of the gospel, Mark influences his readers by showing Jesus interacting with other people. So whether it's the disciples or whether it's the uh, Pharisees or um, even just a Roman soldier at the end. Mark is consistently challenging his readers. So you and me to consider his opening statement and asking us the question, who is Jesus? So for Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, is the sort of prologue to the greatest story ever told, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is good news. It's like a movie where the first five minutes, the scene is set, the characters are defined, the basic plot outlined, and you're hooked, and then action. These verses are just the beginning of the story of Jesus. The whole of the story of Jesus' life and ministry is good news. And it goes beyond just these chapters of this book. And we see later in chapter 13 that Jesus' followers are still talking about this good news, even today. Jesus and the name of Jesus is being talked about through all nations today. According to Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus starts with the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. When John the Baptist steps onto the scene and he baptizes Jesus, this is the place where Mark chooses to start to tell the story, not at his birth, but at his baptism. So why is that important? Mark makes it clear that this meeting between Jesus and John is not just a coincidence, but a God-ordained plan. He does this by um, quoting several different actual um, Old Testament verses together, taken from Isaiah and Malachi, for example, which predicted that both John and Jesus would come. John is sent ahead as a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So from the beginning, Mark roots his starting point in this ancient prophecy, which is now fulfilled. And this is, because, is important because John the Baptist's arrival is shocking. 
Those people who knew about this Old Testament prophecy would have been taken by surprise because God's people had not heard a prophecy for centuries. There'd been like this gap, a silence from God, some might argue, that um, the Jewish people would have been waiting um, to hear from God and waiting for the Messiah and the one who would come before him for such a long time, and there had been such silence. And this word that I keep mentioning, the word Messiah, means anointed one. Jews hearing this word would have taken this to mean something really specific, understanding this Messiah to refer to a military leader who would lead them out of oppression. This is what they had been longing for, and here they are. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness, out of the blue, clothed in camel hair, eating locusts and honey, and preaching a baptism of repentance. It's shocking. He looks weird, and he's starting to tell people to repent and be baptized. The message is also quite an interesting one, do you not think? The Greek word used here for repent is metanoia, which literally means change of mind and describes that sort of feelings of remorse for the things that they've done wrong and that don't stack up with the righteousness of God. It means making a change to one's thinking and therefore to one's behavior. John's message reminds us of the Old Testament prophets who repeatedly called the people of Israel to turn back to God and turn away from the idols that they had been following. They were told to stop disobeying their God, to clean up, refocus, and reprioritize Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only God. John's preaching resonated with the people. Just look at the response from verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went to him, repenting of their sins and being baptized in the River Jordan by John. For pious Jews, baptism actually wouldn't have seemed that strange, although it might seem a bit odd for us. Self-immersion in water and hand-washing were actually practiced as a way of symbolizing their need to be cleansed from impurity caused by sin, whereas John's baptism symbolized forgiveness of sins. Another difference is that John's baptism isn't self-service. You can't just bound into the Jordan River yourself and then splash about and then you get your baptism certificate. No. Um, It's not what people have done for themselves. You can't do it for yourself. Rather, real cleansing was outside of their control. They needed John because it is not what the people can do for themselves. I can't wash myself ten times and then I'll be clean. No, rather, it is um, what is being done to them. That's the point. They have to accept and receive the symbolic forgiveness of their sins. But John isn't even the main act. You could think about it like this. I once, uh, quite a few years ago now, decided to give my sister a really quite an exciting present for Christmas. Um, My whole family clubbed together, um, but I was feeling a bit cheeky, so I actually decided to wrap this present, which is about yay big, in a much bigger box. I mean, I'm really mean. I don't know why I did it, but anyway. um, So I wrapped up this present, I put it under the tree, and she was really excited because it was the biggest present under the tree. Um, So when she got to unwrap it, Um, She's not very good at hiding her disappointment, Um, so she opened this package, and obviously the box that I'd chosen to put this present in was that of a weather station. 
Um, and I mean, for some of you, that might be an amazing present. It would have been for my dad. But um, for my sister, she was slightly disappointed. So I encouraged her to actually unwrap the present. Maybe the weather station actually was better than she might think. Um, and so she did. And inside, she found an iPad. <gasps> Way better, right? <laughs> Excuse me. So you can see that the thing that she had wanted and longed for um, for her birthday was finally there. And I can see this illustration working like this. It's a little tenuous, but stay with me. John the Baptist is a little bit like the weather station box. You know, <coughs> excuse me, um, inside there was something better. It was still a gift, it was still something longed for, but it wasn't Jesus. And I don't want to diminish him, but Jesus was like the iPad. Okay, he really was. He's better, he is longed for, and he surpasses all else. Not that the iPad does that, by the way. John's job is to prepare the people for Jesus, the better gift. John knew that he was not the focus. In verses 7 and 8, John recognizes his unworthiness, saying that he can't even untie the sandal of the one who comes after him. He's saying that he's not even unworthy to do the job of a slave. It's a messy job. You would get filthy. You'd get dirty. The shoes would be covered in muck and mud, and you'd get it on your hands and your clothes. And John is saying, I am not even worthy to do that job for Jesus. He also makes it clear that the one who comes after him, Jesus, is A, more powerful, and B, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, John is only able to baptize with physical water, whereas the one who comes after him, Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit, which is something that only thus far God the Father is able to do. We know that because prophecies in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, in fact, say that God will pour out his spirit in the last days. And here, John the Baptist is saying that the one who comes after him, Jesus, will be able to baptize people in the spirit. So the water baptism that John provides as a symbol of the forgiveness of sins is just the beginning. The most significant baptism is that of God dwelling with his people through the Spirit. And we see this actually coming about and happening um, when the Holy Spirit comes um, down from heaven in Acts, when Jesus has already died and ascended and sends the Spirit on his people. And that's the day we call Pentecost. And it's only by verse 9 that we actually finally meet Jesus. Yay! We get absolutely no explanation from Mark about why Jesus gets baptized. Nor is there any of the conversation between John and Jesus or Jesus and the crowds um, as there is in the other Gospels of Matthew and Luke. The reason for this, I think, is that Mark is simply focused on highlighting the divinity of Jesus. As the heavens are torn open, God is revealed as something like a dove, and it descends on Jesus. This dove is another Old Testament reference from Isaiah to a savior figure who will be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit then comes upon Jesus as a permanent presence, confirms Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, and empowers him for his ministry. 
and the words of the Father can be heard. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is a significant statement, once again, loaded with Old Testament references and meaning. The phrase son of God is used here as a title, not just as a description of a relationship and a specific reference to previous messianic prophecy and scripture from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. It's a big deal. By stating that Jesus is the Son of God, this passage separates Jesus out as the divine Savior, loved by God and sent for a purpose. The whom I love could also remind us of the words God spoke to Abraham when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his, and I quote, only son whom you love, which we read about in Genesis 22. In Mark, God is speaking to his son, Jesus, whom he loves. The emphasis of this reference is relational and highlights God's love for Jesus. As Abraham loved his son, Isaac, And if you think about that context, Abraham had to take his son Isaac to sacrifice him. And although that never happens and God spares Isaac, on this occasion, God loses his only son, Jesus, for you and for me, so that we can be in right relationship with God. Then, by verse 12, Jesus is almost abruptly sent out into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And again, Mark doesn't go into the temptations Jesus faced or how he even overcame them. But we see here that this time is a time of preparation for Jesus. Because by verse 14 and 15, so spoiler alert for next week, sorry, um, John is no longer in the picture at all. He's now in prison. And Jesus is sent out on his mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near. So these 13 verses at the beginning, beginning of Mark's gospel set the scene for Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, to begin. So just imagine that you were one of those huddled under the catacombs in Rome, frightened for your life, knowing that family and friends had already been taken by Emperor Nero and had already died in the arena. This is what you would want to hear, right? The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it's written in the prophet Isaiah. You would want to remember why you were in this pickle in the first place. You'd want to know the cause for which you were prepared to die. Mark's gospel is a reminder to us all to remember. Remember the good news. So often we get distracted by the world around us. We become downhearted and we lose our first love of Jesus. Sometimes we focus on the stories of the miracles or the activity of the church and we don't focus on the most important person, Jesus. Let's remember that this is where Mark begins to start his story. Who is Jesus? 
Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the divine Son of God. He was spoken about for centuries ago, and all that was said about him has come true. Remember, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what does that mean for us? If you had to answer the question today, who do you think Jesus is? What would be your answer? As we journey together through this book, perhaps keep asking yourself that question and see whether you can join with Mark in his challenging declaration. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for this introduction from Mark to Jesus. Lord, you know our hearts and you know where we are in relationship with you. But Lord, I ask that that question resounds in our hearts and minds this week. Who is Jesus? For those of us who have strayed and feel far away, we pray, Lord God, that you will come near, that your grace will abound, that we will be able to accept that cleansing, that baptism, that washing that you offer, that forgiveness of our sins. I pray, Lord God, for those who, um, who don't know you yet and who are asking this question repeatedly. I pray, Lord God, that you will help them to see you more clearly, to know you as Lord. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we will hold you in the right position. You are Messiah. You are anointed one. You are the one who came to save us. Lord, breathe new life into us, I pray. Amen.